Hi, this is Austin Wintery, and this is the Game Maker's Notebook. We're doing something a little bit different today. For the first time, I am talking with a sound designer and senior audio director, Phil Kovats, who, despite the fact that I have known him for quite literally my entire career, I immediately get his name wrong, and it sets the tone for the entire interview thereafter. Phil is a really wonderful guy. He spent a lot of time working in sound um, in the film and television worlds before moving into games. And he tells all kinds of fascinating and enlightening war stories about how to kind of get your feet on the ground and how to go from getting your hands dirty into more of a leadership position, not to mention tales from the trenches on projects like The Last of Us. It was an enthralling conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Today, something new, something groundbreaking, something potentially controversial and podcast breaking, uh, diverting from my normal stream of composer chats to uh, expand to the exciting realm of sound design, audio direction, file name extension, redoing, all the various tasks that I assume are attendant with that. Library jockeying. Library jockeying. You'll have to unpack that one for our for our fantastic audience. So Phil Kovat yep. at Sony. Let's uh, let's let's uh, real quick. I want to take that again because my, my name is wrong on here. It's actually Kovat. Did, did I say did I did yeah. I say Kovat? I, it's so yeah. funny. I I think we met fourteen years ago. I've never I've never not. <laughs> Uh, I've never not known your name and in just the mindlessness of the moment, I looked up to, uh, check myself and I, and I said it wrong, but I refuse to edit that out because I'm a fallible person and make my, uh, make my mistakes publicly. Phil Kovats, <laughs> um, Phil Kovats, Present. a long, uh, tenured audio pro in the game audio. How are you, sir? I am good, Austin. Uh, now I sound like a jerk for correcting you, and uh, not at so, all. No, I, I actually love it. I love, I love, you know, going straight, straight for accuracy. I, I hey, we believe in a candid, a candor with each other. Yeah, we've known each other quite a while, so it's all good. Yeah, well, exactly. That's the thing. I, I'm not. Um, I am not above. I, it's funny. I remember I did one of these in particular. I did one with Will Roger. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, seemingly an eternity ago and it was probably only two or three times but in my mind everything i said he went no actually i don't think that's correct and he he kind of constantly had me <laughs> kind of on my on my back heel uh and uh but i loved it you know i i i don't um if i could if i could make one imprint on the world it would be reducing the sting of being corrected and realizing oh it's it's actually better to be right uh, than to preserve the ego, and you get you are right by being corrected when you're wrong. It's uh, the beauty of constructive criticism. 
It's how we get better. So, I, I, but that said, I will have my revenge by constantly. I will not call you Phil at any point. You will be Phil Kovetz with an enormous amount of emphasis on the Z of, of siblings of the S. Yeah, I'll correct you again. Oh fuck, you're right. It is. It is actually that. I. That's funny. In my mind, it's very Polish looking. Now that I say that, or Hungarian. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, I'm having fun with this. I'm going to keep correcting them all the time now. Well, I'm going to now. I'm just going to start teeing up mistakes on purpose, so you don't know if I'm an idiot or if I'm just a troll. Uh, It is funny though how in my mind, I wonder if I even have that wrong in my like phone book, like my address uh, on my my contacts in my phone, because I swear it's a Z. Are you sure? I'm pretty sure you don't know your name. Uh, Pretty sure I don't. It, it could happen. It's uh, I'm over fifty now, so uh, there's there's a lot of possible things that all I'm, bets are off. Yeah, yeah. Well, for for uh, f- why don't you walk us through um, how you just the kind of general? Sometimes I do this in a sort of biographical way, and I just say, "Tell me about your childhood. What what traumas are you getting over?" Uh, or you know, it's more about like organically jumping onto a specific title and broadening from there. But in your case, I actually don't know a, probably most of, in fact, at this point, I'm prepared to say, I, I, I'll just, I'll just assume I don't know anything. I've, <laughs> I want you to take uh, shots so I can correct you. Just like, just yeah, like exactly. make up a backstory. So, yeah. so you grew up just outside of Cheyenne, Wyoming. Actually very wrong. Yeah. Initially totally ambitious uh, filmmaker and but found that the audio side of filmmaking was where your heart really, uh, you know, would go pitter patter, and decided to migrate away from there. How am I doing so far? Uh, it's completely wrong, but I love it. Yeah. Do you prefer my head cannon, Phil Kovacs? I, I, I do. I do, Austin. Um, <laughs> no, it's, it's yeah. Uh, I, I actually have no idea where you grew up. So uh, I'm actually a first generation American. Uh, my dad's from Budapest. My mom is from uh, uh, Canada, Montreal. No wonder you called okay. out the Hungarian over the even my even my uh, sort of soft read on. I, I just for me Polish is anytime I see seemingly superfluous Z's and C's. No, but, it's good. Actually, my mom is is Polish, so I'm pretty much Polish Hungarian. You you got you're fifty percent right on that one. I've got to give you that. Fifty percent uh, right is better yeah. than all my other rights so far. Yeah. So I'm improving. <laughs> I'm improving by degrees here. First generation American. So your your folks um, came when through Canada, through in the in the mid seventies through through uh, Canada, uh, or no through late sixties. I don't know why I said that. Mid seventies, I moved to Dallas. So I pretty much I grew up in, was born in Connecticut, moved up, grew up in Dallas. Um, so uh, really cool music scene there. Growing up, everything. Uh, Fell in love with movies really early, TV shows, um, and uh, was always kind of uh, driven by sound. Uh, music was something that I was expected to learn as a kiddo. Uh, I took piano lessons for years, classically trained uh, trained pianist. And your parents were musicians? Is that what, what led to that? Or what? how um, was that expectation... It's actually funny. Uh, my mom played a bit. My dad was not. But the funny thing is, my dad's mother uh, uh, played with uh, Bella Bartok back in the no tw- kidding. Back in the twenties, she was part of the trio uh, that he was with back then. Holy so, shit! Yeah, it's kind of a fun thing I, I kind of learned about later in her life. 
And I was like, why did I not know this before? This would have been amazing to talk more about and learn more about. Yeah, no kidding. I, I, I routinely hold Bartok up as, you know, maybe the top composer of the 20th century. You know, it's always kind of wow. Stravinsky or maybe Copeland. There's a few people that sort of vie for that spot and with good reason. But for me, he is one of the true originals, just absolute you know, monster of a composer. I can't, I can't believe to have such a close sort of degree of separation from him. That's incredible. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Uh, but, um, yeah. So I grew up, uh, piano, uh, started listening to the radio or, uh, cassettes as we call them back in those days, uh, and heard all these really <laughs> cool new sounds from synthesizers and saw movies like star Wars and, uh, uh, gosh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, everything uh, during that time. Just grew up during that amazing period of late 70s, early 80s movies where sound design was just taking off. Mm-hmm. Um, and was, the, ben Burt, the, the ascendance oh, yeah. of Ben Burt into the pop culture. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it, yeah, I mean, just everything. I just soaked it all up. Um, and, uh, you know, always made sound effects when playing with toys and everything else as every other kid does. But, um, uh, picking up, you know, uh, from the piano side, I was more ear trained than I was, uh, uh, theory trained. And I, I never really could play and read music at the same time. It was just too much for my brain, my ADHD brain to kind of, uh, do. So, um, yeah, I just, I think part of that growing up gave me kind of a, an interesting uh, viewpoint or ear point on sound and how it was used and why it was used and um, always loved reading. And so I think storytelling was, was a part of, uh, of who I was and, you know, playing D and D growing up and doing the whole thing, mm. make up all these stories and all these actions. And um, it just kind of like took its course. Um, and uh as I started buying my first synthesizers and, you know, just playing with friends or I found out that I was a really shitty live musician. Uh, <laughs> and I was never really going to be in a band and I really enjoyed, uh, trying to emulate things or not things, people like uh, tangerine dream and Vangelis and, mm. um, more of these kind of, uh, ambient style, uh, interesting, you know, sound design composers, who, who just made me feel things. And right. so I did a lot of more synth programming than performing. Uh, and, uh, you know, at what I, age about is this uh, like kind of where were you in life when this sort of influence is washing over you? Um, uh, probably mid teens. I brought my, bought my first synth, which is a Korg DS eight at the age of 17 after I saved up all summer. Cause that was the one I could afford. <laughs> and, uh, so that was about, I think $900 in those days. And, uh, and it's not bad for a summer hole as a teenager. Yeah. And you know, I think the fact that it was so limiting on its capability was actually one of those interesting things where I was trying to emulate all the things I heard from different bands and going like, why can't I do that? How do I do that? And just, (laughs) you know, just gave this like real sense of curiosity and, and what have you. But, um, yeah. So as, uh, as my parents saw that was a waste of money, uh, I went into college and, uh, got degrees in business and psychology. I thought I was going to be in marketing. Um, and oh, wow. yeah. And just always kept like, you know, acquiring little bits of gear here and there and just playing for myself or doing things for myself. 
So, I, well, I'm curious to square two different statements then. If you're, if there was an expectation of learning piano and things like that, and there was an obvious appreciation for the arts, especially given the Bartok mm-hmm. backstory, um, it's interesting that there would simultaneously be a sort of dismissal of that as a as a passion or an interest or even as a career path, depending on how you framed it. To what was that? Just is that the classic sort of immigrant? parents, you know, who are sort of eyeballing the most practical way for you to earn a living and hope that you'll be protected from yourself. This time you're absolutely not wrong. Um, God damn it. It feels weird. (laughs) I don't think I enjoy it. (laughs) No. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was like, Hey, we want you to have a better life and a struggling artist was probably not the way to do it. So what was there, if I, if I may ask, what was their lines of work or what, what what kind of, what were their um, expertise uh, my dad was a programmer or yeah. And then, uh, 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 yeah. Uh, doing like financial programming for, for systems and, and did some traveling mm. for work and, and, uh, yeah, my mom did some, uh, HR stuff and other things, but she was around when we were growing up. So, uh, she was always there. But still, it's a, it's something that's, uh, I was curious how arts adjacent it might be. And that, you know, that I can, I can see the yeah. kind of the writing on the wall, how you, as you're portraying it. But, but the interesting part of that, and so just kind of making a little gift in there, uh, is that with my dad being a programmer, there were always computers around. Uh, and mm-hmm. we had, we always had some form of computer around. And so I, I was really interested in that and, uh, you know, started doing basic programming and Pascal programming. And I tried little bits of like, uh, COBOL and what have you back in the day, but I wasn't again, uh, being ADHD, not a great programmer. Um, so, um, it, it was, yeah, it was a little too much on that end. Uh, for me to do, but I, I enjoyed like all the early games, like, you know, the Microsoft Fright Simulators and Zork and mm-hmm. uh, having a Commodore 64 and seeing what that could do and Atari and Intellivision was actually our jam. Um, oh. And uh, so there was lots of things that kind of came out of of those in my head as far as like sounds and and ideas and, and thoughts. And, you know, I would, I would try and program basic, like my own, like D&D, uh, like text-based kind of oh, fun deal of the day. Um, but you know, uh, things being what they were, uh, that didn't work so well. So, uh, you were preparing for the exciting world of marketing and, and business major. Oh God. Yeah. It was, it was amazing. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I ended up, uh, getting a job as most do out of college on not exactly where I thought my career was going to be. It was in rental car. So that was, that was fantastic. Amazing. In 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 uh, Dallas area or where where was college? In Dallas, yeah, Dallas area, and uh, at a place called Austin College up in Sherman, Texas. It was a small private university, about twelve hundred students. So, by, by the way, as a, as a side note, my mother grew up in Arlington and Fort Worth. Uh, there you go. So so I've got some, you know. Yep. Some slight little strand of connectivity here with you. We we passed each other in an airport at one point. Uh, <laughs> Probably. Uh, okay, so you said, here's the bridge. You teed me up for something very alluring here. I'm ready. So, uh, yeah, here we go. <clears throat> in a world. No. Um, <laughs> I love that that's still the universal trailer thing. And it hasn't actually been in a trailer in probably 20 years. No, exactly. Just a, like, I, like when you see old trailers from like 1999, it's amazing how they look. They feel like they're from the yeah. 60s yeah. because it's just – anyway, no, I love dude, it. You, 
how, how I, I spent some time in my post career doing short form uh, promos and trailers and stuff like that. So I worked with a lot of those voiceover guys and it was the funniest goddamn thing in the world when it was like Hal Douglas doing the comedian trailer for Jerry uh, uh, Seinfeld. And it was like, you know, in a world, one man, two men on the edge of space, you know, <laughs> it, it was just, it was, it was so perfect. And having the producer going, no, God, please stop. Um <laughs> It, it, was just, it was such a great inside joke uh, for people who worked in that uh, in that field. Yeah. But uh, working with Enterprise Rent-A-Car, I moved from Dallas to New Mexico because I have, uh, by that time in 19, 1994, uh, I figured I'd learned everything I could from Dallas and my life there growing up. And uh, I had actually taken a photography course in college in northern New Mexico at a place called Ghost Ranch, which is one of the most beautiful places you can go. So if you're listening to this, if you want some inspiration and just some amazing visual feedback and just the food and the people and everything, New Mexico is the place to go. Um, And uh, it just so happened that we were shooting or that we were contracted to deliver the vehicles for a commercial company that were shooting uh, commercials up in Santa Fe for cars. And uh, so I met uh, the, uh, production, uh, coordinator and production manager, I think they were called at the time. Uh, and, uh, I kind of knew things like about the Clio awards and stuff like that about ads, you know, and they were like, how does some hick in New Mexico know about this stuff? Um, and, uh, you know, I kind of talked about, you know, musical background and someday maybe I would want to do like stuff for movies or TV or anything like that. And they said, Hey, if you want to do that, you need to come to LA. You just, you just need to do that. That's, that's where it is. Um, and so I, I came to visit uh, LA back in December of 96. Um, and uh, I moved out January of 97. Um, wow. And just, just quit my job, did everything, and came out here uh, with a hope and a prayer, as some might do. And hmm. uh, when I came out here, I literally, there was a, there was a book called the LA 311 at the time. And it had like all this industry information, like studios and, and uh, agencies and everything else in there. And I started cold calling names that I recognized, uh, including uh, composers like Roger Bellon, who did the Highlander <laughs> TV show uh, and that. And dude, he was amazing. He spent like an hour on the phone with me. I, he, had no re- <laughs> he had no reason to, right? And I, I talked to- I love stories like that so much. I, I did talk to a couple other people, uh, some not so great, and I won't name their names. Uh, but th- there were a couple that you know impressed upon me that hey, if this is something you want to do, you kind of need to learn post production, time code, what the whole process is, what the whole industry is, because there's really something to that, to, to kind of knowing what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, and so at that point, your level of sort of knowledge on specifically sound design or mixing or all those kinds of fields was kind of just ad hoc what you have picked up on your own and yep. you never really had any real kind of professional experience no. with it. No, no, no professional training, no school training, nothing on that. Sorry about my dogs, by the way. We're no, home, it's all good. So yep. it's, it's life. So, yep. So it is. I love that though. I love because the subtext of that story is that you basically just dove in headfirst with the idea of I'll figure it out. You know, it's like I'll build the plane mid-flight kind of mentality. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I get a lot of composers asking for advice, spe- specifically on that 
subject of should I move to LA? You know, obviously COVID injected a kind of X factor into that question, but broadly speaking, you know, a lot of folks say, oh, I want to move, but I don't feel like I'm ready or I've kind of gotten my qualifications up to snuff to make the move worthwhile. And I, and then there's the number of times that I've heard people who have found their footing and found their, their, their place, found success where you realize that they were pretty much bluffing their way through the first 10 steps, myself included. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just, it's almost universal. And I just love hearing yet another example. No, it's, it's true. And, and uh, I think taking chances and uh, being a pro at adaptation is a big part of success uh, and, and being able to uh, pivot and learn and be uh, open is, is a big part of it uh, and trying not to inject ego into the process. Um, because, uh, no matter how good you think you are, you kind of suck at some point and you, you have to make mistakes to know what good is. Um, so we always, you know, even now try and encourage people to make mistakes, uh, so they can figure out some way of, uh, learning something from it and, and, uh, and knowing what not to do is just as important as knowing what to do. I feel like I've been the living embodiment of that so far on this podcast. I, I, uh, I've, I've demonstrated all kinds of learning from your mistakes moments. So uh, it's, it's uh, yeah, I think we're in perfect sync here. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm the first one to always call myself out. So it's good. I love it. My wife. Well, so how, did you, that, but... how, how did you, how did you start uh, like the, the, the million dollar question for a lot of folks who are at their own kind of comparable positions as you're describing yeah. was, is often, you know, okay, it's all well and good to kind of have those, pie in the sky ambitions and that sort of naive optimism of I'll just figure it out when I get there. But how did you quite literally figure it out? Because obviously you didn't know these basics empty and, you know, clocking to, you know, outboard gear and all that kind of stuff that you would have had to learn. Where did you start picking that up without, you know, eating the dust? Yeah. Respecting the record button. That was a big one I learned. (laughs) Um, Yeah. uh, So especially because it would have been to tape. uh, Yep. Yep, sure was. Um, so uh, I started with a gentleman by the name of Frank Serafini. Uh, they needed an intern to help around the office. I was overqualified. I wanted to learn the business. He had a sound design studio in Venice, California. Um, if people who are not familiar with his name, uh, he's passed now um, a couple of years ago, but uh, he, uh, he was on shows like, I don't know, uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture, uh, Tron, um, uh, hunt for red October, uh, lawnmower man. He did some, you know, decent size movies in the eighties and, uh, early mid nineties. Uh, and he was known for, uh, you know, a lot of things. Uh, and, uh, part of what he was known for was, uh, bringing up talent. And, uh, there was quite a few people that kind of came through his studio, uh, who, uh, who went on to some, uh, pretty good careers and, uh, I'm lucky to feel like I am guess I'm one of them. So, um, but I think no, it's safe I, to say you've had a pretty good career. Yeah. I'm, I, I, I like to say that part of it is luck and part of it is, is, uh, uh, a lot of hard, hard work. And that's where it came down to like working when I got, started working at Frank's it was all perspiration. Uh, basically I spent extra time at the studio. I think I slept only a few hours a night. I tried to teach myself everything. Uh, Frank taught me some things. Other people who were working at the studio taught other things, whether it was recording fully or setting up the music room, uh, 
cable tying and organization, um, uh, figuring out the sampling. We had uh, Avid Audio Vision, Soundscape, uh, and uh, Avid, or no, uh, AMS Audio File Machine. Um, yeah, and uh, what was the other one? There was uh, it wasn't Cubase. I can't remember what the what this. Uh, oh God, I can't remember. Anyway, uh, so he had a huge amount of synths. He had um, all kinds of recording equipment, and uh, uh, he had a um, Akima as well, which was mm. really really fun to try and learn. But yeah, I just spent so much time in the studio trying to learn everything about, uh, like you said, syncing, time code, recording, uh, uh, setting up the mix room. Um, and we did so much stuff within like the year and a half or so that I was there. Uh, we mm. did we did some commercials. We did a couple of films. Um, and did you, I, did you migrate your way up from your initial position that you were overqualified for and during that time? Yeah. Like were you able to get your hands really dirty on actual, yeah. you know, sound design and things like that? Yeah, uh, I did. I did. Actually, funny story. Uh, when you talk kind of like faking your way through it, uh, so we worked on this little independent feature, and there was a gunfight, and I really wanted to do the gunfight because it was awesome. And Frank had this amazing library of stuff that was all on MO discs to go that go into the the emulator four, you know, that would get played into Avid or whatever. And um, so. I got him to sit down and he said, okay, after lunch, I'm going to come in, man, and we're going to sit down. I'm going to show you how to do it. I'm like, great. He goes, just pull all the sounds you want. Let's get them on the keyboard and get it to work out. And yeah, he was kind of, had this like really kind of, yeah, man, kind of cool voice like that. <laughs> so, um, so I got everything ready and I was really set up and I was so excited. And, and uh, we sat down and he came in and goes, okay, let me see what you got. Okay. Did it sunk up the three quarter machine with the scene and goes, okay, now find the first shot. Which, which one you want to start with that? So he like plays it in with like one note and, and does his thing. He goes, yeah, now you just do that for the rest. <laughs> and he goes, okay, I'll come, come back when, when you're done. And I was like, uh, okay. Um, I was hoping to get sage advice, like layering and context and, and timing and all these kinds of things, frequency and, you know, how to not step on one another, but no, it was just like, you know, figure it out. And I think at one of the, one of the moments that was like great for me because I totally screwed it up and I had to, I think I took like a day and a night to do it just to try and figure out how to do it right. Um, you know what I love about that is it, it seems like half the time we peel back the curtain and learn how some of these creative disciplines really work, you discover it's 10 times more complicated than I could have ever imagined. And then there's other times where you realize it's actually far simpler than I would guess it, because the people that are the masters, at least, develop this kind of intuition about it's just you just do this, you click that. And you're done. It doesn't need any more than that. And you just think, yeah. I would have, I, I would have, I, I was, I was certain it was a thousand hours of work. Yeah. And it's like, well, not if you're good. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. And I, I love, I love, yeah. That it sounds like this guy was really just kind of one with, one with the technique, you know, one with the machine, one with the process. Totally fluid. 
Yeah, and he just he just kind of went by feelings and and everything else, and uh, and you know I I love him for it because he he lets you make your own mistakes and do your own thing and and kind of figure it out. But the 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 biggest thing I can say about Frank is that uh, he gave me a shot, and uh, once I kind of proved myself, you know, he kind of let me dive in um, with with both feet, and uh, and you know I was able to to really kind of get a jumping off point after his place. Uh, and uh, started working in TV. I cut Power Rangers and Beetleborgs next. <laughs> nice on a fair. I, I never knew that. <clears throat> yeah. So I spent I spent a couple years doing that, and then uh, one of the guys who had left a company called Modern Video Films, and he had left and started his own company, uh, Pacific Soundwaves, and uh, he's a great guy named Stephen Clark. Uh, he, he's still mixing today. Very talented dude, um, and. Uh, he uh, he brought me in to help him uh, edit dialogue for another TV show uh, called Sabrina the Teenage Witch, um, and mm. then and then I started doing sound design and dialogue for that show and pre- prepping it for the stage, and uh, and then I started uh, also he did a lot of uh, promo work and short form work for uh, promotions for like companies like ABC and Disney and and others, and so it was, you know. <laughs> there was this kind of interesting progression of never getting stuck doing the same thing. I was always doing different things, uh, which totally played into my ADHD brain. Um, (laughs) But that is a bit, that is a bit sort of endemic to the nature of working in post, working in sound where you, you know, things come across your desk. There's a flurry of activity to get a lot done in a short amount of time. And then you move on to the next thing. And I think that that's, it's certainly analogous as a composer, a lot of appeal. I mean, obviously in games, it's different because sometimes you're involved for years on end, which is the abnormality compared to film and TV. But nonetheless, it's still yeah. it's still different than the, the directors and their counterparts who have to live with one thing for a very long time. That's very, very true. And that, that kind of ties into uh, where I started in games. So in uh, 1999 is when I got my first start in games. And uh, the show went dark for the season. So when everything's kind of happened, things dry up, you get kind of laid off for the summer or when it's, mm-hmm. it's that way. And so I needed to find some, some other work. And, uh, I had made a friend, uh, with Richard Adrian. Uh, he's now at EA up in Vancouver, but at the time <clears throat> he was working at a company called Nova, Nova logic, uh, out in Calabasas. And uh, they were doing things like Delta Force and Comanche and Armored Fist games and these kind of military sim games that had these cool like uh, possibilities for sound. And um, they were going to be starting a new game and they needed some help. And Tom Hayes was the audio director there. And uh, so I was able to uh, get into getting an interview uh, and uh, well, funny story about that. So how Star Wars plays a role in, in my career. Uh, not, none other than uh, waiting in line at uh, uh, for Phantom Menace with the team from Nova Logic. So I went with, with Richard and sat in line for 13 hours uh, and just chatted with people from Nova Logic and held their place in line while they went to the restroom or go get food or what have you. And, um, and so they invited me to, to come into the theater. And so I got to go and see the movie with them. And when I went in for my interview the next day, they're all like, Tom, you got to hire this guy. He was awesome. <laughs> That's such a '90s game industry story, <laughs> dude. It's 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 great. Um, 
So it's also actually amazing because Phantom Menace was 99 and yeah. you said you moved in 97. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so it sounds like th- that, that's actually the way you told the story made it sound like, you know, there were just years and years and years doing all this t- post work and sound and like stuff. And you got a lot done in, in what is literally, it's by the sound of it, a year and a half to all, two years at most. I, I, I literally did not do anything else with my life. And I, I, I don't mean to say that in, in any kind of like weird way, but I was completely invested in where I wanted my career to go. And I wanted to soak up everything like a sponge and have all the, all the experiences of success and failure and uh, try to figure out what my voice was and figure what I could bring to productions and how could I do better and how could I you know, make something that mattered right? As an artist or, or as a storyteller. Um, and so uh, I think uh, in this case, the, the big thing with, with having that post and, and production background, especially TV and short form on those ends, uh, you learn how to work very fast as we kind of mm-hmm. talked about. Um, and, you know, and, and sometimes in games, you, you kind of slow things down because you have time and, and everything, and I think one of the reasons I got hired at Nova Logic is because I was able to produce things very fast when they needed it done that way. Where they may have other uh, uh, employees who were, um, you know, thinking about things and, and trying different ways of of coming up with sounds in a unique way. I was using what was in front of me, trying to be as creative as I could, and coming up with things that worked that I felt worked. So there was that kind of adding deadlines to myself. Uh, to to do that, and uh, it, it, I guess it worked. So <laughs> clearly, so, so yeah, I, I spent I spent a little while there with that team, and they were awesome. And they were so much fun to work with. Uh, and then, what was the general? What was the general response from that crew on the Phantom Menace? Uh, <laughs> I think uh, well, from the audio team, it sounded good, uh, but uh, it wasn't uh, what everyone expected it to be. So I just love it. So it's so rare. You hear these stories of people standing in line 13 hours like this is going to be crazy because now it's just people. People don't even like talking about it. And uh, well, it was funny. Yeah. Then. I, I remember how excited people were and how you know crazy it was in the atmosphere in the theater and people running around with lightsabers and then how quiet it was when people were leaving the theater. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I remember the. I had a very parallel experience. I, I remember the audience as soon as the title started, and you get that big bright chord on the words "Star Wars" and the whole title yeah. crawl. Audience just screaming, literally just losing their mind in the theater. Um, really, really, really ready to have a life changing experience, and then yeah, sort of afterward going, hmm, uh, well, it was, well, it was okay, I, and. I, uh, I, I figured, you know, things are going to be hit or miss. But uh, one of the things that I feel that I, I have kept to myself is, is kind of like the, I don't want to say childish, childlike sense of wonder has not been throttled out of me yet. So I always try and find things that I like and, and you know, what are they trying to say and, and, and just trying to enjoy it in the moment, you know, of what it is and, and not trying to say well, what it should have been. Well, and I can definitely say, especially when you mentioned that the, the rest of the team's response, I, I remember watching some of the behind the scenes of Ben Burt, you know, coming back and working on this again after, you know, after having worked on Return of the Jedi, however many, 20 years earlier, and just yeah. the most unbelievably iconic work that he had, had done throughout his career. And then just seeing so fascinating the way, you know, all his techniques had evolved. And I remember something that was especially interesting was 
during some of these battle scenes where they had just like a million blaster rifle shots, he was apparently triggering those in Mach 5, yeah. uh, which I thought was so cool. I was like, hey, I use that. That's that's I didn't know you guys use that. That was the first time I ever realized uh, that some of those tools kind of cross pollinate in that yeah. way. Yep, absolutely. When everything kind of started going digital, uh, I remember seeing behind the scenes too, and like you know, the the incomparable Matthew Wood was uh, the person who was kind of bringing him into the new uh, decade and and showing him all these things. And it was oh, I didn't realize that part. Yeah, it was very very cool. Uh, And there were other things too. Like I I became part of like the American Cinema Tech, and because I enjoyed seeing movies. And uh, one of the presentations they did was uh, an audio presentation. It was like Dane Davis and Gary Rydstrom. And uh, oh, I can't remember. It's so sorry. I know there was another person that was in there, but those are the ones that really kind of like spoke to me as far as like the Matrix and uh, uh, Jurassic Park, how they broke it all down uh, by its elements and how they put these things together. Um, I never get tired of those. Yeah, it was really, it was really uh, eye-opening and ear-opening for me. Uh, you know, later on when I was doing some more creature work and, and more special sound design work, uh, it was it was always kind of like harking back to like how do you layer, how do you find these things, what what kind of you know just. Gary writes from this this great bit of like knowledge where he's like, hey, if you record something and it's your 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 rice cooker and you have these like cool sounds where they're rice cooking steam screams, don't call it that. Call it ghost screams or something else. You know, <laughs> it's like it's about the feel. It's about the story you're trying to tell. It's not about what it is. Yeah. You know, and so about those happy accidents. You know that Randy Tom talks about, and you know the the accuracy and, and detail work of like Walter Murch and all these, all these people did all these oh, yeah. amazing work. And I just tried to soak it in as much as I could and, and try and find, you know, what, again, what could I bring to the plate? I'm, I, I don't think I'm going to be one of those guys, but um, you know, just, you never know what, what could, what could happen in your career, what opportunities you have and, you know, just come at it with as much fervor and, artistry and uh, positive attitude as you possibly can. Uh, And that was another thing too, is I always wanted to try and like be a good person and learn from people and, uh, and, and take in what other people uh, had through their experience. Cause I was always working with people who were smarter than me, were, you know, were older than me, did more things than me. And, uh, and just trying to be open to those things is, is, is a great way to be um, especially if you're a young and, uh, in the industry. Yeah. You know, especially because LA, you know, I moved here in 2005, 16 years ago, uh, pretty much exactly this time of year. And, um, I remember there was always, I was moving from New York and New York, everyone just loved to shit all over LA and say, Oh, you know, they think they're so awesome. But yeah, you know, the future of Hollywood is in New York, you know, they're building sound stages in Brooklyn and they're always talking about it. Like, LA's dead, man. It's just, why bother? And there's a lot of this kind of really intense cynicism that's just part yeah. of the New York thing. You know, like in, in Ghostbusters, when the mayor says, you know, it's every New Yorker's God given right to treat each other like dirt. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I, I think that um, my experience upon moving here, because it was, it was teed up as though everyone's, everyone's, you know, just bullshitting their way through everything. Yeah. It's all a bunch of, posturing and fake personas and blah, 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 all the cliche Hollywood shit. And with virtually no exception, I have found that to be completely nonsense. Uh, yep. And the 
16 years. It's people like you're describing it, the way you talk about how you conduct yourself. So many people that's true for. And what I found is yeah. that the, the ones that the very few that I found that did seem to kind of, um, uh, you know, sort of be representative of that cliche fake Hollywood sort of thing. They were always some of the least successful. The most successful tended to be very generous, very creative, really eager to take feedback, to offer their time, to give feedback. The, you know, everyone from the Steven Spielbergs who are driving the industry, who are leading it, to someone who's just arrived and but bound for success in the years or decades to come seem to always have that in common. They're always kind of wanting to just put their best foot forward and help. And, and I love that every Starbucks you walk into, there's 10 screenwriters who are, who are sitting there on their laptops working, you know, dreaming up the future. They're not sitting yeah. there going, oh, I fucking hate this, but I got to do this draft. They're like, oh, then what if this happens? And then the, the character could react this way. And a lot of that, it's like, I've, I've found it to be an incredibly optimistic city in a way that it, it is never sold as. And I've, 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 I've never understood, but you're, everything you're saying is, is so compatible with what my experience has been. And you're kind of a walking example of what I think the real LA actually is. If I can put you in the position of being our ambassador. Uh, okay. No, I was kidding. <laughs> we'll take it. No, that's great. I know. I'll take it. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's true what you're saying. I think, uh, a vast majority of the people that I have come across with in my career over these 20 something years, uh, have been salt of the earth, right? They've been, they've been interesting and giving and open and candid and, uh, everyone tries for the most part to do their best. Uh, there, there's always been people where, and you know what, you learn from them too, what not to do, uh, and Absolutely. how to not conduct yourself. Uh, and, uh, those, those, you have to be open to seeing that side of it as well and, you know, let them make their own mistakes and, and, uh, you know, uh, try and correct them where you can or, 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 you know, try and learn from it. But yeah, I, I think, uh, it's, it's been, it's been a really positive experience for me and I, I feel very lucky and that's maybe where I, I attribute some of that luck is I, I've, I have been, able to find opportunities with the right people who are looking for uh, kind of where, where, where my skills and, uh, and, and uh, priorities align. Right. And, sure. and so uh, that's, that's kind of the luck part of it. The, the hard work part of it is, is always kind of like where the rubber hits the road. Um, and, and I always attribute that to, uh, and I, I tell this to my team members these days is putting yourself in a position where you fail, but don't. <laughs> Uh, I mean, there, sometimes you, you should, there's no way you should get out of this. There's no way you should succeed. Uh, everything's kind of against you, the deadline, the tech, something, but somehow you found a creative way, uh, a clever way, uh, 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 an interesting way to make, uh, your voice heard or tell a story or come up with a solution that, uh, creates an opportunity in an interesting way for whatever project you're on. And I think there a lot of recognition comes from that. People who come up with different solutions and and tell stories in interesting ways. You know, and and also just jumping back sixty seconds to talking about the importance of luck. You know, sometimes people interpret the importance of luck as a kind of downer, as if to say, "Oh, well, you know, it's all out of my hands." And but what I feel like the 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 missing interpretation 
that interpretation, what it misses to using your story as the example is like you standing in line with these guys at the Phantom Menace and then getting along great and then going, Oh, you got to hire this guy. And that proving to be this kind of inroad. Uh, what to me, my, when I look at that, I say, Oh yes. How lucky that you met those people when you did that, that movie came out when it did that you could yep. kind of bond with them in the way you did. But the way that you are hearing just the way you conduct yourself, the kind of person you are, if it wouldn't have been that it would have been something else because that's the sort of luck where it's like, if a thousand people buy a lottery ticket and one wins, it, there there was gonna all like there's someone in there is gonna win, yeah. you know. So it's like you have to play to to be in that. And if you play enough times, the lottery is a terrible example because the odds are so astronomically against the ticket buyers. But um, by way of analogy, it almost works. It's like if you had <laughs> stood in line with the Phantom Menace guys, you know, the next week you would have done a pub crawl with some other guys, or the next week you would have done. You know, can I, you know, my my friend's daughter is doing a, a, a car wash for charity. Can you help with that? And or you would have gone and helped with that or it would have been this or that. There would have been something yeah. that then later you'd be telling me the story. And the craziest thing is at this event, I met this person and then let it, let it, it's like it, 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 all it takes is one of those. We look back selectively and we only focus on the one time that it yielded this thing because you're not telling me the story of the 50 other things that you did like the Phantom Menace story that didn't open that door for you, but you're just the guy that was always doing stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a great way of putting it. Uh, you, you always try to make your own luck in the, in a, in a way. And, oh, and it is, uh, as I see it. yeah. And, you know, try and be your best self and, and, and be open to, to listening and looking and, and feeling things and sometimes opportunities present themselves in ways you wouldn't expect, but all of a sudden they're there and it's up for you, up to you to really kind of like grab on and, and, and go for it in some way, shape or another. And that's, and that's kind of like how I um, bring it back to it, the, the career, how I got into games full time was uh, I was working at a DVD company and a couple of the guys uh, had uh, split off to go to Technicolor uh, in the interactive department. Um, and, uh, and so I ended up, uh, uh applying and, and getting a, a gig, uh, with Mike Gollum, uh, and Lydian Tone at Technicolor Interactive, um, and started working on games that, uh, may be a little bit more familiar to where I am now. Cause they were like, you know, Ratchet and Clank and Jack and Daxter. Um, and then mm. eventually, uh, we got the opportunity to work on God of War, um, and and a few other things uh and it was it was uh, it was amazing i actually didn't realize that because i knew that you had history with sony titles going back 20 mm -hmm. years but i didn't realize that that initial experience was via an outside sort of contractor a, a, like post yep. post house kind of work that, that's fascinating i never realized that yeah it was uh it was it was really kind of cool in fact my my current boss uh dave morant uh who's now vice president of uh, creative arts uh, group which i work for uh he was uh i guess manager of audio or something on those those lines back in 2004 and uh he, being someone who's open and generous and tries to do best for his clients uh, you know, they were having, you know, creative issues with the first God of War and trying to get the sounds that David Jaffe wanted to hear on the voice of the creatures and, and how he wanted them to be unique. 
And so we got the opportunity. He came to us uh, because of uh, you know our our reputation with you know with Naughty Dog and and those things. I think um, uh, and Insomniac. Uh, to uh, give us the opportunity to uh, do a test for mm. for David Jaffe, and it was I think the Hydra and something else, and um, yeah, it was it was one of those cool things. And I, I actually worked with uh, my boss at the time, Michael Gollum, and we 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 did we did some internal like testing and and that. But uh, so one of the the key sounds I think that kind of got us the gig uh, was. Uh, Mike and I had found this uh, espresso steam scream somewhere <laughs> in in one of the things that were recorded, and it just sounded like this crazy vocal. And then uh, I took that and convolved it with like wing flaps or something else, just to get that flutter and and what have you. And and I think that was the thing that kind of cemented us kind of working on God of War at the time. Um, and I love those kinds of stories so much. Uh, yeah. Just the, the, those those crazy, you know, the mundane household item that is the most terrifying thing ever um, through the right yeah. lens and processing. Yeah, there were, I think there were a couple other layers that were more expected, but they were hidden and 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 just felt. But yeah, it was just it was just really kind of cool. And so uh, you know, it was it was great, uh, and uh, we worked with some people who uh, you know still work with Sony today, like Derek Espino, uh, uh, Michael Johnson was working with us at the time uh, under contract for like Ratchet and Clank. And then on God of War, him and I did a lot of the work and Lydian Tone. And it, it just, we just really had a great time doing this. And then uh, I think Dave came to me at that point in time and said, hey fella, um, you know, why don't you come work for us? Uh, and I said no twice. Uh, at the time because he wanted me to move to San Francisco and then San Diego. And I just had uh, my first kid at the time and that was too far away from support and family and friends. And uh, you know, it just, it just was not the right time to do something like that. And then again, I mean, just to how having somebody believe in you and, and having a feeling about that, he offered to me one more time and said, okay, I made a position in Santa Monica. For you, can we do this? And wow! Like, However, yeah. how much time? How much time went by? Like how 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 re, how kind of frequently was he poking at this? It was a couple of months uh, in between each time. I think uh, you know, uh, and you know, I, I never thought that I was you know losing something because I enjoyed working for Technicolor. I, I thought I was going to be there for a long time. Uh, I was also working with like. Uh, the film crew every once in a while, like helping out when they were doing like temp mixes and stuff. And, you know, for, for, for those who, who know who Richard Anderson is, uh, who worked on Raiders of the Lost Ark and, and, and did a bunch of amazing stuff. Um, there was this tent movie they're working on and they were like, Hey, can, can somebody grab a, a, a phone slamming on their desk? And he kind of talks like that, honestly. Uh, and I was like, yeah, I can do it. I'll just, I'll just record, set up a mic, record it. So record it, deliver it to the stage, what they needed. He just, he turned to me and goes, hey, you have a future in this business. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, okay, that was kind of silly, but it was just, it's just funny to have like characters like that. And at the time Mark Mangini was working there too. So I was able to access like these really interesting people 
um, that are still relevant today. Like Mangini was, you know, Fury Road, then Blade Runner. Now he's doing Dune. Uh, you know, he's, yeah, he was, he was awesome. Awesome dude. Um, still is, I think, I'm sure. Um, but, I, I get uh, that though. I love to me that when, when, when you have these heroes that you get to kind of cross paths with and see them just working and, it, yeah. and it's, and there's something almost blue collar about it. And you realize that they're a genius because of what they've left behind, but they don't walk around with, you know, the, the like golden rings and a giant fur coat, like the promoter walking behind Rocky kind of mm -hmm. vibe. Like they're, they're, they're really actually, I, I have a friend who worked, who, who works uh, in visual effects and was working at ILM and, um, the, and like there are folks there who worked on the you know original Star Wars films, so they've been there yeah. for decades. And he was like, you know, they just pass you in the hall, hey, good morning, and you realize that's the guy whose work is why I do this. Like yep. that's the person who I read an article about twenty five years ago, and now I want to do it. And, and he just said hi to me in the hallway, and 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 he's like distracted, just thinking about today's tasks. And like, there's something yeah. so magical about those opportunities, the demystifying, you know, they say don't make, meet your heroes. And sometimes that's very true. But, but, but I also love when you see just how fundamentally normal yeah. uh, it, it, it can be. Yeah. The, the work is how their brain works. Right. And that, I think that's why I use that term like salt of the earth before is just because they're right. just people, this is just their job. They're great yep. at it. They love doing it. They, 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 every bit of their soul kind of like is, is geared towards this, but they're just people showing up to do their work and have fun with their teammates and and uh, live the best life that they can, right? By by offering the this these uh, sounds to the world, I suppose through their art. But um, so a but position yeah. was created in Santa Monica. Yeah. yeah. So I uh, I took that one. Uh, and was this is specifically sound design. Yeah, it was a sound design manager gig. Uh, mm. on that one. And, uh, I was working with, uh, with Chuck Russum at the time on God of War two and Warhawk. Um, mm. and, uh, yeah, that was, that was, that was a big, that was a big, uh, intro into Sony and, it, you know, and we, we, you know, started working on a little game called flow. I was going to say, I, 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 I actually specifically remember, visiting the office when when that game company had their little tiny corner office yeah uh, upstairs and yep in the old um building right by penn the water station. garden yeah. um yeah the penn station building yeah and they had yeah. they had the little office upstairs yep and yeah i always remember feeling a little intimidated uh visiting that building and but but those days of of uh you know being able to to meet you and uh Monty Arup and Paul Fox, yeah. I remember was yep. was like uh, I don't think we could have ship flow without Paul. No, um, no. and um, yeah, it's just uh, it, it was one of those. I I felt so stupidly lucky to be working on this because it was like six months earlier. Flow had been a student flash game experiment, yep. and now here we are, like not even a year later, and and it's like oh they're working on God of War down the hall over there, and it's like yep. I don't know how the fuck I got in this building, but somebody is going to check my ID at one point and realize I don't belong here. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, just talking about that game company, I mean, one of the cool things I think about uh, working for Sony is the variety, right? And uh, sure. we, we, 
we used to do smaller games. We do mostly larger games now. Um, but I mean, we would do everything from uh, God of War to, you know, Jack and Daxter at the time uh, to uh, these smaller games. And, and, you know, also working on Bluepoint's first game, Blast Factor, you know, uh, with mm. uh, uh, Paul helped a little bit on that too. But it was like uh, me and Steve Johnson worked on that one. But I did some like concept oh, yeah. sound design work on Flow before Paul took it over on that. And, and I don't even just, know if I remember that. Yeah. Working, working with that game company was awesome. And, and just moving on even to flower. I remember, uh, in the, the pitch that Genova Chen had for that meeting and just saying, you know, he want to make a game about love. And he had this chart of love up on the, the whiteboard and everything. And it was, it just like, this is so cool just to be talking about this. Right, and you get so many ideas and thoughts, and um, and where you can take sound, and and I think what influenced me about uh, working with some of these people like Corey Barlog on God of War and Genova, and uh, God, so many others, um, is just like the opportunities that they gave to actually be part of the storytelling process, mm. and I think those are some of the most successful projects where they bring in sound as not just a function, right? This needs a sound. Go put a sound on that kind of a deal. It's a checkbox in Excel. It's more of like, hey, how can we convey a feeling? How can we uh, make the the player feel this or clue them into this or give them a hint of that? And, uh, And then having those discussions both ways. I mean, uh, definitely that was The Last of Us for sure. Uh, because I, I was going to say, I, I've heard so many stories. And Last of Us is kind of the exemplary uh, sort of model of this, of just every last little detail. You know, what does it say about the world, how the door creaks when it opens? I mean, it's just yeah. everything yeah. was treated as an opportunity to tell stories. And I yeah. think that that's, that's one of those things that I think is sort of criminally under uh, appreciated about how games are put together by like the perception from the outside world. It's, it's, it's why I'm so thrilled to have you here because obviously we've been fighting the good fight to shine a little light on what composers do and the composer analogies to all this, but there's so much beyond that in the realm of game audio yeah. that uh, we, we rarely get into here and that even within the industry, but, but God knows outside of it even more so just the thought about how much goes into every, you know, footsteps and like on you know to, to jump ahead a little bit but on last of us 2 um there was this fantastic thread um that went a little viral on twitter about the dynamic ellie's dynamic breathing system yeah uh, and the sound design and how it was sort of tracking to the larger game state relative to combat encounters and all that and it was like just the the sheer amount of work mm-hmm. on something that you're really not supposed to directly be listening to. It's supposed to just be that lizard brain absorption yep. of the emotional impact. It's, it was yep. just so inspired. I don't mean to yank you all over the place because you're doing a wonderful job stepping through this kind of iteration of titles uh, as we get closer to the present day, but but uh, you got me excited. No, no, I, I, I completely agree. Um, the the, uh, uh, oh, what the murmuration system, uh, they called it. Uh, yeah, I mean, okay, let's talk about that for, for a minute. How does that stuff happen? How does that stuff come about? Um, and I think uh, one of the interesting things about uh, 
sound design and uh, you know dialogue and all these kinds of things that we do besides the music, the thing that maybe sets that apart is uh, we touch every system, we touch everything in the game. That's something good to know, right? Because we're we're part of the first animatic, right? That goes in to help sell what the vision is trying to be uh, up until the very last check-in at day one patch mm-hmm. or day zero patch uh, to get the mix in. Um, so we're, we're touching everything from animation to AI to effects to, uh, uh, you know, uh, cinematics to every little bit. Maybe not lighting so much, but I'm sure there's there are. And if there's a, if there's comments in here, please tell me if you've added any sounds to lighting systems. This would be awesome. Besides, just like uh, fall off uh, things. But um, you know, I think that's knowing that we have that, and knowing that we have to do that to get our job done right. Especially if we want to help create. Uh, I think. Uh, audio team members that are successful and, and, and games that kind of put uh, audio forward in some way have this innate understanding that collaboration is where it's at. You have to be able to collaborate For with sure. the team members. You have to not only collaborate by being a good teammate, but by showing them that by great audio, their art could be better. So well said. There is, there is an education and uh, an understanding that has to go into that. And that's that needs to be part of who you are to be successful, I think. Um, yeah, it's you know. so true, and it's it's funny because you know this is only this is kind of only peripherally related to that. But I I get asked a fair amount by younger composers who are you know just coming out of school mm-hmm. or just maybe shifting from a different career, and often there are plenty that that are like diehard obsessed with games. That's what they want to talk about. But there's always a good half of them at least that say, you know, I basically just want to work as a composer. I'm not, I don't really care which field it's in. And, and they say, I'm not really a gamer. Do I really need to be a gamer to find work in games? And I always, and, and what you're saying kind of speaks to that through this sort of peripheral means, because I, I always say, look, technically, no one has ever asked me if I'm a gamer, like as part of a job interview kind of a situation, or like if someone's meeting with composers or, or we're in the early days of planning a project or something, it's never once been the thing that they ask, probably because they just assume I am. Uh, but also you can, you, you can tell, you can read that off of somebody where, mm-hmm. you know, their, their familiarity and their excitement with these systems and the way the games are put together and this understanding of, you know, I'm not just slathering music up against moving images, but I'm actually kind of snaking into this almost living organism that has a lot of moving parts. It's actually more like a clock than a living organism in many ways where you really want to know how do I avoid gumming up the works over here and how do I make it run more smoothly over here and how do we just kind of add something compelling knowing that it's it's moving and it it, it is it is not uh, – it's not even it, – it's so it's so – makes film look quite simple and nonchalant by comparison because it's like our you know our time code in point is here our out point is there and it happens the same way that's really all we got to worry about yeah (laughs) Yeah. it's it's i always say you know there's no real like you'll always you'll always have a competitive at minimum you'll have a competitive disadvantage from those who are actually passionate about games because that collaborative atmosphere i have found always to be that you're describing no one doesn't I've never met a team, maybe this is just the nature of my experiences, but I've never met a team that if 
if I lean in and say, Hey, you mind if I come to your standups or do you mind if, if I am a fly on the wall during your, you know, your reviews with other departments, what, mm-hmm. they, they always get excited about that because the yeah. collaboration and the opportunities that that opens up for pushing those boundaries everywhere is, it's just, it's, it's always appreciated. It's always yeah. sought after. Yeah. Uh, it's, like, it's like actors preparing for a role to understand what their motivation is or where their character uh, footprints are and, and, and trying to, to think about, you know, you know, what can they bring to the role that's different or what, what, sh- what uh, shading can they bring, you know, to the character to make it their own. Uh, it's it's kind of the same thing. It's understanding, you know, because you will have to build systems, right? You have to get something done correctly in a technical way. Uh, it's just who we are. It's what we do. The technology uh, informs your creativity, and the creativity informs the technology, and mm-hmm. and and there the twain shall meet. Uh, but, uh, it's something that, uh, you don't have to be the most technical person in the world, but it's great to have a fantastically technical person on your team who understands and how to put these, you know, more, uh, you know, esoteric concepts together in a real way, uh, you know, and, you know, engines can be engines and it doesn't matter what engine you're in, but, you know, you're going to have to put together a Foley system, but what are you trying to convey? You know what? What's the what's the feeling of the character? What you know? What's the depth of of the character's uh, place in this world? And how do you want them to be presented to the player? Um, you know, and I'll, I'll just go back to the Last of Us again because I, I think, and not because it's recognized, but I, I think I, I feel that I probably had one of my best experiences, hardest experiences for sure, but best experiences making a game on the Last of Us because. Um, Are you specifically singling out the the first one? Uh, the first, you the first one, or? yeah, the yeah. first one. Uh, I, I had started on the second one, uh, but uh, you know we moved into doing uh, uh, Uncharted Four, and then uh, right. after Uncharted Four, being on uh, the Last of Us Part Two for a bit, I ended up going back to Sony uh, to run the group. Yeah, I was going to so I was going to ask yeah. about that pivot, sort of internally ish, uh, uh, but I didn't want to interrupt. But so, but continue about the Last of Us. No. Um, so, you know, it, well, it kind of leads into that. I'll, I'll lead into it that way. So I, w- I was with Sony for a bit. Um, and then, uh, so you were talking about Paul Fox before, and he's just an amazing like sound designer and just a technical and thoughtful person and just a good person living in New yes. Zealand now uh, is, yeah. and, and working great. But uh, so he worked uh, on my team. And uh, so after Warhawk and those games and kind of doing some external stuff, he ended up going uh, on a, to Uncharted 1 and helping out Bruce Swanson and, and his team over there on that game. And so after Paul had moved on to something else, uh, Uncharted 2 uh, was available. Uh, and Bruce and I had been close since like 2004, the audio lead at Naughty Dog, when we were working on Jack and Daxter together. He's one of the funniest freaking people uh, in the entire world and just uh, a mentor. Uh, he also came from post. So there was a lot of things that, that were somewhat similar and very different, but just, I loved working with that man. Um, and uh, so uh, things coming up as, as we were, God of War 3 was ramping up. We had hired a lead for that. So I didn't have to be as involved. I wanted to get my hands dirty and situations were correct. And so I went on uh, to help out Bruce on Uncharted 2 as being kind of the principal sound designer on that game with him. Uh, and, and his team there. And we just, we had a freaking blast. 
And uh, that's when I learned that they were kind of splitting into a multi-title studio. Um, and uh, so after Uncharted 2 and after God of War 3 shipped, they were like, hey, we're doing it. Do you want to come on board? And I said, yes. And at that time, uh, as been previously recorded, so there's the, this is not uh, uh, any crazy news. Uh, I think they were thinking of doing like a Jack and Daxter 4, like a reboot of Jack and Daxter. Mm. Time. So I was actually really kind of excited about that. Well, Bruce was kind of moving on to Uncharted 3. Um, but once I got there, I found that they were not doing that. Um, we were kind of working on Uncharted 3 together for a bit. And then uh, the one of the co-presidents, Evan Wells, said, hey, Bruce and Neil want to, Neil Druckmann and Bruce Australia, they want to give you the pitch on the game that they're working on um, and uh, want to see what that was. I think they had given it to Bruce too at one point in time, or they'd given it to like the Leeds team before I got there. And so we, I got the pitch of the game and I was just like, boom, just blown away by what they were trying <laughs> to do. And it's a bit different than what ended up shipping, but there was a lot of core stuff that was there and the characters were there and, and the, the motivations were there. But um, just as you go through a game process, you figure out what changes, what works, what doesn't. Of course. But, uh, but I, was, I was blown away by that. And I was totally, uh, I had like this whole idea in my brain about what we could do and coming up with terms like hopeful melancholy you know, which, which, which I think Neil brought up to like, uh, uh, Gustavo when, when they interviewed him for, for the, um, composer gig. That wouldn't surprise me. And, uh, it was, it was just such a, an interesting process. And what I really liked about the last of us was we could create a new world in a new way that hadn't been done before from a new point of view. And what, when I say a new point of view, is we knew that Joel was going to be the main character of that game. Um, and we, we, we knew how important his relationship was with Ellie. And, and Neil Druckmann did such a great job of really kind of like bringing that home to all the people who had a say in the game. That it's the relationship between the two that it's going to matter. And how can we uh, elevate that relationship? How can we uh, uh, invest it into it and how have players invest in that relationship in, in, in a, such a way? And so a lot of my thinking went into how, how do we go from just a player experience into more of the character experience? And it shifted in my brain when I thought, wait a minute, Joel's an old hat. He's been through this before. Every he's he's gone through everything, seen everything. He's not a great dude. He's not surprised by anything. But this is all new for Ellie. So the sound of the game should follow the arc of what her emotional state is at any given time. So if it's beautiful, it's really beautiful. If it's horrifying, it's really horrifying. And if it's violent, it should make you sick. Kind of a yeah. thing. And so uh, we kind of came at the the concepts of the sound uh, of that game based on those kind of precepts. And I think that really kind of like helped us stay like very grounded, uh, very uh, careful about what we picked, why we picked it and how we put it in the game. It's funny. I remember working with uh, Steve Johnson very closely in, at that time when we were working on Journey. And he was, I think, kind of bouncing back and forth between the two. Yeah. And I remember he always was so grateful when we would work on Journey because it was so just like, uh, like gut wrenching. And the, 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 like you were you were successfully doing exactly what you just said. And like, let's make this as visceral and kind of 
powerful as possible. And I remember it really took a lot out of him because he was obviously, you know, he's unbelievably good at what he does. Yep. And so it was like, uh, you know, there's just nothing left. There's nothing left for me to give. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm draining my soul. Not, 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 not in the, in the bad sense. Like I'm, I am leaving nothing on the table uh, here. And, and yep. so it was sort of j- pivoting to journey was like this sort of Zen garden reprise from how visceral that uh, project was. I no, remember, it's and it's funny because I didn't know exactly what he was working on. You know, he was kind of honoring his his NDA uh, to the best of uh, of expectations, you know, and saying, "Well, you know, it's there's a there's a there's a project, and it's got some it's got some violence." And at the time, I didn't know what, exactly what he was referring to, but it was clear that there was no stone being unturned. I mean, it was always very impressive how how uh, just intense uh, it, it it was teeing up yeah. to be. Yeah, Steve was a great partner at the time. And and I remember exactly this. Like we would call it, you know, his time with Journey is more of a palate cleanser. Uh yeah, that's him. the word I was looking for. And yeah. uh and he he was fantastic at, at coming up with a lot of uh really interesting ideas and and trying to get the stuff to work because emotionally we just we had to go there because we had to be honest. Yeah. And um and I don't know if I've talked about this before, but I mean uh my uh my kiddo at the time uh, was what six or seven, my girl, and uh, I actually uh, had her be the temp voice of Sarah, uh, no the daughter in the house. I mean, she's going, "Daddy," and this whole thing. That was my kid who was doing that, and so it, it kind of, in, in a weird kind of sicko way, it kind of helped me invest more in in the character and 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 what Joel was doing and how he presented that the horror of the opening of the game. So, you know, and, and, and <clears throat> I got to know Troy uh, Baker a bit too, and we were doing this too. And, and him and I talked about, you know, how heart rendering, uh, rending that the, doing that scene where uh, Sarah dies in the game, spoiler alert, game's been out for a long time. Um, it's also the very opening of the game. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, it, it's, it, it's interesting, you know, what you try to do to get yourself to those places um, uh, to make sure that you're honoring, uh, the art in some way, shape or fashion, because you are an artist, you are a storyteller, no matter who you are in the game, you have, you have merit, you have, uh, 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 weight into, uh, helping tell that story. And, and that goes, I think, uh, doubly for sound people in some ways, because, uh, it's not a visual medium medium, and you have to think of things in a creative way to marry the visual with the, uh, the story into a way that enters people works with the music, uh, and, uh, you know, and the dialogue and, and coming up with a way to, uh, get the player to feel something right. Yeah, you know it's so funny. It just as a as a little mini tangent off of that, a few years ago, I did a, a kind of elaborate stage production type thing with Troy, um, and we needed a young woman to kind of play off of him on stage, and he recommended Hannah, and so it was their first time working together basically since shooting that scene. Um, other than the the one little kind of there was like a live reading event uh, yeah. of reading through the script highlights uh, in Santa Monica, you know, at one point that had been a couple of years prior, but it was the first time really acting together kind of for real. Um, and I remember she came when we were doing kind of a we were doing kind of a workshop reading, and she came and she was like eighteen, and I remember thinking 
So wait, you were like, you were actually like 13 or something when you did Sarah? I, I, I thought, because you know how it is. I thought she would have been, you know, 17, 18, 19, playing younger. And because of the nature of mocap, it's far easier to pull that off. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't believe it because I, I, I said, you were, you were playing essentially the age of the character. And, and the intensity of that scene, I, I had a whole new appreciation for that whole opening kind of prologue uh, and the authenticity of it, especially because of the Hana does not have that Southern accent. And for a kid to pull off that just on top of it uh, as well, I, I, the whole thing just, it made me realize they, the, the seriousness of craft that every single person brought to this game is just every time I look into it more and I've had conversations, obviously we're talking, I've had just on whole thousands of hours of conversation with Troy about it and with Hana and with Neil and with Gustavo. I, we did a thing on here together. It's like I, every time I look at it from a new angle, I just find 50 more things that blow my mind. It's just that, yeah. that game. Um, it's just no one, no one half-assed a single pixel or a single, you know, one out of 48,000 per second yeah. sample of audio. Like it's just, it's just, it's just marvelous. It's total full ass. Yeah. It is a full ass production. It's a full ass production. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So what I love is that everybody, it seems like everybody was so just intrinsically motivated to give it that too. It's not like, it's not like Neil and Bruce and everybody else are cracking this oppressive whip saying like, God damn it. Give us more. Give us more. I mean, they're probably, you know, certainly motivating leaders but it seems like everybody just wanted it just just saw what it could be no there there are there are amazing uh stories of uh you know designers uh working with neil and bruce coming up with new ideas that they they had to pitch which changed the game i know i know people talked about before about carrying uh ellie out of the hospital was was not what was supposed to happen at all and and one of the designers like literally did a full pitch on that with them to say, this is how it needs to be. There has to be that parallel. Right. And that spoke to Neil and it spoke to Bruce and it spoke to everybody on that. And, you know, I, I think just the way we approach that through audio, you know, basically, you know, leave, leaving the music up, turning almost everything down, but putting it through reverb, except for Joel's vocal um, and having that sense of focus on that through, through that, through that moment, just like carried, we were all invested in that change, all of us. And that was something that I think, uh, showed on that bit, um, that we were, I think, so proud of on how that came together. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's that kind of, literally every other part. <laughs> no, yeah, no, we were, we were very lucky to have a, a game like that and do it, but I think, um, again, I think the luck is the title. The luck is having good people working together, but then you work really hard together <clears throat> and you fight for what you believe in <clears throat> and you, you, you know, you work tirelessly. Uh, and I, I mean that physically and, and liter- uh, literally and, and, uh, uh, figuratively, um, to sure. have, have your vision, uh, uncompromised in, in some way as much as possible. Um, because you know, making games is hard work, you know, uh, and uh, audio is one of those is inherently a post production process, so it it usually comes later in 
when everything yeah. is done. However, you know, you you can do the best you can to be as parallel as possible. And we're always finding new ways of of working with teams and and uh, helping them uh, find uh, strategies to be more parallel in their production process. So there's more buy-in on an earlier time uh, to cut down on any type of um, of crunch at the end as much as possible. Um, but, uh, you know, the fact that you do come later means that you do have to respond to things. Uh, and so to try to get that ability to, uh, have that uh, understanding and, uh, uh, how do I want to say backing when scheduling the game to where they understand what you need to do, how you need to do it and, um, and getting the time that's required to get it done right is important. Variety. That's one of those things that I think Sony in particular, you know, uh, uh, like I've, I've just always marveled. I, I, I joke I, when I talk with um, like uh, Pete and Keith uh, mm-hmm. and say, you know, I don't know what it is that it's just every year when the round of awards comes along and the, whether it's dice uh, our, our, our benefactors here today oh, yeah. or, um, uh, the BAFTAs or what I said, it's just, it's just whatever Sony most recently did is if not the front runner is always a contender for the top scores of the year. And I said, and it's not just that the team in general, um, you know, has a, has a good sense of, of great composers that could really, you know, fit these projects, but the overall kind of infrastructure really does just give everything it's all. <laughs> and yeah. it, it, it just, it never fails to amaze me. Like, cause what you just said that kind of got me on this was when you said, give us the time to do it right. You know, and, and, and it's not just about, can we deliver tomorrow, but can we deliver something that, you know, might outlive us like that, yeah. that can, that can be a thing that people would want to go back to and hopefully revisit and, and get something meaningful out of and maybe discover yeah. new little hidden surprises in for years or decades even, you know, yeah. and, and I, I just find that that sentiment seems to be something that, that, um, Sony has managed to really cultivate internally, um, to an extraordinary degree. I mean, and I've worked with fantastic teams at Microsoft and at Ubisoft and, you know, there's, there's a lot of talent throughout this industry, Oh yeah, but there is something about the kind of Sony ethos that I, I, I've always marveled at that. And it's, it's not meaning to, I really don't mean to sound like I'm sort of you know, uh, trying to butter you up here, uh, or, 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 um, you know, I'm feeling toasty. To, yeah, exactly. I was trying to think of the, the, the most, uh, SFW, uh, descriptions, uh, but it's, it is, um, uh, but it's true. I mean, I've just, I've just genuinely, it's been one of those, that's why I consider myself so insanely lucky to have, to have worked, uh, with Sony when I have, because, um, I'm also just genuinely such a fan. Like it's, it's yeah. like, I, I've always, whether it's recently with Ghost of Tsushima or anything, it's just, it never fails to amaze me. Yeah. Uh, the, the detail down to the smallest little parts of the yeah. sound and of the music and of the mixing. I mean, just the sheer amount talking with Keith, you know, when, when, uh, the recent, uh, God of War, like 2018 God of War, mm-hmm. you know, it's like just hearing about weeks of mixing, yeah. Um, and it's like there's so other few studios that that even can do that. Never mind, yeah. would prioritize 
that much time just on an audio mix you know it's kind of like well yeah. you know just get all the assets in game and we consider that a win <laughs> yeah well i mean i i think I, I can't speak for a lot of other studios but i think that's over the past couple of years that's that's been a recent occurrence uh for us as we've kind of like proven what we can do at that time and 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 moving the needle uh with what matters with that time and uh and uh, first of all thank you uh for that uh i am incredibly proud of every single studio at PlayStation Studios uh, and the teams of audio that they have and what they bring and the uh, artistry and and uh, understanding and technical excellence and and what have you everything literally everything from the platform R and D people all the way down to the implementers at the studios all I mean pardon my French but give a shit right and and it's I didn't know it, you spoke French that's cool you yeah. may have so many talents no oh, merci monsieur um no but um. You know, it, it's an interesting thing because it's. I think it's about investment. It's about culture. It's about uh, being able to motivate uh, the teams to try and do their best and and give them the opportunities to do their best work. And uh, so my role now as uh, I don't know, that sounds right, senior director of sound uh, for creative arts is I I work with all of the first and second party studios. Uh, with my team uh, uh, to learn what they want to do, learn what makes them excited, help them uh, focus, help them get support in any way that could be just from uh, uh, coming in with a, a technical and creative assessment to where we can help you know uh, them through their milestones and give them uh, some pointers or ideas or or just you know camaraderie on that end all the way through full, like, uh, being the team, uh, from soup to nuts on, on the games. Uh, so, you know, we have a kind of a unique viewpoint on things too with, with this team. So we, we work with studios who may take, you know, two, three, four years to ship a game, but we're shipping as part of our team, we're shipping multiple games a year. Yeah. So, exactly. so we, we, we get this, unique perspective to learn. And this is what I keep telling my team. It's like, take notes, learn, grow, share, you know, uh, help the other teams move forward. Um, and, you know, we have this uh, uh, culture of, of wanting to be better together. Uh, mm. that, com- that comes directly from Herman Hulst, by the way, which is, which is amazing. So um, a, a really kind of recent example, because it's out now, uh, is you know we had uh, Demon Souls, uh, we had uh, Returnal, uh, we had Ratchet and Clank, and uh, we went through our experiences with those on PS5 and and working with the engines and working with the sound and working with the mixing techniques and 3D audio and all this. And so, literally, Jeremy Voileau, who mixed uh, Ratchet and uh, Demon Souls, and Loic Cotier, who who worked on Returnal, was the lead and mixed that game, uh, sat down with Brad Meyer and said, what can we do for the director's cut of Ghost uh, and for the PS5? And how can we approach that mix differently? Not change what the game sounds like, but how can we make it more efficient? How can we look at what we learned from those other games to make it work in a more mm. cohesive way in, in, a, in a new way and approach it. And so that was just that type of camaraderie and that type of understanding and, and uh, sharing and giving is what's important, right? We don't, we don't look at what do I do, but it's more like, what can I bring to the team and how can we do it together? Right. 
I love those stories. You hear them. You hear them a lot more often in games than in the film industry. Of uh, yeah. it does still happen in film, but the, but those conscientious, you know, hey, how did you uh, how did you manage to you know balance you know your gun foley, which was so omnipresent, to the fact that there's voiceover and this and that, and you know. Like you meant there was a particularly effective job at that. Would you mind just walking me through how you did? Sure. You know, I mean, it's like there's stories like that are so are so common and so typical uh, that, you know, it's it's there's this belief that um, I think it's because actually that broadly speaking, most everybody working in games are gamers. So there's at least at least I should say this is my attitude on that. Why I certainly don't mind or I love, in fact, uh, helping other composers, or, or, or if, if at minimum, just cheerleading their 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 work when it really strikes me, which is often, <laughs> uh, uh, is because it's like, as a consumer, I I'm always looking at the kind of continuously raising bar, yeah. and and I, I don't have there's not this belief that you know if I'm not the person who is single handedly raising this this infantile thing up to maturity and grace, then I'll have none of it. You know, I want no part of it. It's like, if it doesn't serve my ego, then fuck it. And uh, I'm not the only one who speaks French. And so I, um, I find that there's that, that rather that ego list, like, no, no, if I act in the service of games, then that means that six months from now I get to play even better games than I would have otherwise. And why would I not want that? What is that? What is a, any conceivable downside to, like let's all just make the whole thing better, even if we are yeah. kind of softly competing with each other in some sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's not. I, I'm not doing the work anymore, as I, as I like to say. I talk about talking about doing the work, right? <laughs> uh, and I try to inspire and uh, and you know give my team the resources and and uh, latitude. Uh, to work and and encourage the teams that we work with, whether it's you know Kojima Productions or Sony Santa Monica or Naughty Dog, when we you know work together and and uh, you know those are still we're still family you know as far as Naughty Dog goes. So um, or even new teams, um, you know it's it's amazing to see like how we can inspire each other and uh, and get them to think about audio in new ways and create oh, sure. and create relationships with audio at their studio because not all studios are the same their motivations are different their expectations are different their budgets are different uh, and so we have to champion our craft in some way that allows us to uh, to show that we can have a maximum effect on what their vision is for the creative director, for the executive producer, for all, for all those uh, people who are making these big decisions, but down to the people who are creating the art in different ways on how we can make them better. And I think if we approach things like that, we get a chance to raise that bar every single time, every single time. Oh, absolutely. It, 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 uh, it shows, you know, it's one of those, you, you, the body of work speaks to that in a way that, vastly exceeds all the very nice sounding, uh, wonderful kind of frameable sentences like you just gave us. Uh, it, it really, it's like, you don't even need to say it because the body of work is, is just so, um, it's so incredible to that end. I, I, I was, I played through ratchet and clank, um, 
we did one of these with Mark Mothersbaugh not long yeah. ago, and um, I was playing the game. Oh yeah, it was a wonderful chat, and and I had I I had a lot of games on my plate as we all do. You know, there's my Steam library at any given time has I think ten thousand hours worth of viable content that I'm sort of debating. What do I do? What do I do? And uh, but because we had that chat coming up, I decided to prioritize Ratchet Clank on the on the PS5, and I was so in awe of that game of just from a sound and visual standpoint both i i it's truly it's one of those games that i thought okay there's always one title that when a new console generation comes out makes you kind of it grabs you and says here's a tease of what next gen actually can look and feel and sound and sort of taste like that to me is the definitive break in the seal so far of just going holy shit this this it it's amazing that it can still surprise you and give you that, to your point of an hour ago, of that awe and wonder of what it was the yeah. first time you saw like 8-bit color moving as pixels and you were like, what? And it could bring that exact feeling back. Yeah, exactly. And 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 to go back to another part of the conversation earlier uh, of those relationships that we build over time and how we are with people, I've known Paul Mudra, the audio director there for 16 years, 17 years now. And so when when we're talking with one another and we're working things out and looking at the game and seeing what we can do, there's an ingrained amount of trust that we have with working with one another. He's not going to come in and go like, hey, this guy's trying to take glory for this work. And I'm not trying to say, well, he doesn't do this. And we're, we're, we're coming at it from this honest and open point of view where we can both create and come at it from how do we team up? And sorry, I knocked my mic. How do we team up? And uh, I talk with my hands a lot. So there we go. Putting me behind sadly, the mic is like a terrible thing. Sadly, um, our listeners won't get to see your excited gesticulating, yeah. but I've been yeah. enjoying it. Yeah, it's 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 fun. Um, but you know, we 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 try to come up with solutions for these things and and opportunities and you know, like little catchphrases, like that we we tell the the sound designers or the dialogue team. It's like, what would Pixar do? Right. <laughs> and, and so you look at those kind of little bits and, and it encourages and uh, uh, gives them, uh, uh, what's the term I want to use? Agency to mm. make decisions that, would, that, that key in on certain points and help them work together and come up with new solutions for things that can be interesting and, and compelling. Um, and I, I love working with these teams and figuring out what they're going to do next. And I'm, I'm just as excited now uh, for all the things that we have going on uh, that I was before when I first started. It, you know, it, it was definitely a shift to go from uh, actually kind of sitting in the chair and doing the work and and figuring things out myself to to uh, kind of leading the teams and and figuring out where we go as as a whole. But it's it's been an amazing experience to kind of see what we can do together and and figure out like what are all the the nuances and and uh sameness that we all kind of the all the same issues that we have to figure out just in different ways right so uh or challenges we can overcome do you miss um actually crafting the sounds do you find yourself wanting to find a way to sneak that in I do. This is why I keep buying like synths and plugins and shit like that. Uh, so I can, I'm setting up my home studio to be a more creative place. I'm working from home now through the pandemic and, um, you know, I, I have a functional office at the moment, but I'm, I'm going to try and make it a more creative space where I can take some time and do some of my own things, probably leaning more towards like 
music or, or creative sound design projects just to keep my razor sharp in some way, but not, I'm not going to bottleneck any, anyone's work <laughs> by trying to achieve or even do one thing for them. So um, I got to figure that out on my own, but I, I, I do love uh, motivating and facilitating people to do their best work. I, I, I didn't think I would as much as I do. And I, I really, really do. And again, well, that's its own talent and it's not a given, you know, there's a lot of folks that are brilliant programmers, for example, who become like the, the lead of the programming team at a studio and then discover, I actually don't really love being a leader. I really love being a programmer. And so yeah. sometimes the, sometimes there's kind of a, this is too harsh of a way to put it, but there's sometimes a failing upward uh, concept where you, you actually get promoted into a job that you like considerably less or you're not as good at even. Yeah. So that's wonderful to hear that, that uh, you've personally, you've, it certainly seems like it from the outside that, you know, obviously I don't know the day to day, but just seeing your work and seeing if only what you put on Facebook at, at regular intervals, it really seems like you've taken to it and you've flourished and you've loved it over the last 10 years or so. But it's nice to hear that you actually do love it more than you even would have guessed you had. Yeah, it's it, yeah, it's it's a it's a definitely a motivating t thing, and 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 seeing uh, people succeed, and seeing how they're growing, and focusing on development and creativity, and you know, and collaboration, and uh, I think you know those are all catchphrases in some way. But if 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 they use the right way with uh, these complicated games that we're working on, you can create amazing art and and great opportunities for for incredible sound. Well, I have just one last thing I'd love to get you to touch on because that really honestly would have been the perfect note to end on. And there have been already several that would have been perfect notes to end on. But I'm a greedy uh, and uh, insatiable person. And so because of the novelty, because you are breaking the seal, jury's still out on if this uh, sets a good precedent uh, on you know future audio directors or sound designer uh, types. I'm, I'm still unsure how well I think this has gone. But <laughs> I, I am curious um, – on um, if you have uh, this is a question I don't normally ask. It usually kind of comes up uh, naturally uh, if it if it does. But just get, because of the the freshness of this perspective for this podcast, um, what advice for those who are sound designers specifically? Mm -hmm. um, it's just since we're, so we're always preoccupied with music when I when I do the show. Um, I'm curious what kind of advice you find yourself giving because you must find yourself hit up for advice by young sound designers or people who are trying to land that, that first job at a place like Sony or they're fresh out of school. And I just love to hear your thoughts on how to help steer those folks uh, as they're just, as they're just at the starting. Blossoming. Game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for that, Austin. Um, <clears throat> it's a complicated thing for me. I mean, it, some people think it's simple and some people think it's complicated, I guess. But um, for on the sound design side, uh, there's, there's a couple things. And I, I think one of those is don't be afraid of risk taking. Uh, you know, put yourself in uncomfortable positions. Like I said before, put yourself in a position to fail, but don't. Uh, because you, you do find that to grow, you do have to push yourself in some ways. And that, that can be just for even taking on a complicated trailer or, you know, YouTube video that you want to resound design. Um, I think it's not all about the gear, uh, for me. And when I, when I look for, and I look at reels and I look at tests for who we're looking to hire, 
the first question I asked myself is, do they have taste? Mm. Taste is not something necessarily that's taught. It's something, it's this kind of, yeah, it's this kind of inherent feeling of timing, uh, choice, uh, mixing, uh, you may not have all of the, the skills to know exact right compressor, what the settings are going to be for the dynamics or, or what have you, or, or to dial in, you know, some crazy plugin for whatever sound you're going to do. But can you, uh, bring across, uh, bring across an idea that shows who you are and who you could be? Because when we hire, uh, I like to say we're hiring for potential. We're not necessarily hiring for who they are. Or what they've done, right? You can inform us, and it should inform you. But we're always, I'm always, I, I say we, I always use the royal we. But personally, I look for potential on what they could be. How can they fill in a, a certain need, or or what what could they bring the team? What viewpoint could they bring the team uh, that that we don't have, or 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 an interesting thing? So I, I think for aspiring sound designers working on your craft. Uh, is is a big part of it. Don't get hung up with the coolest plugin. If you have Logic, use the built-in plugins. Learn how to use them well. Uh, those kinds oh, of man. things are, oh, yes. are, are 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 important. Um, libraries, same thing. Libraries are expensive. If you can't do libraries, get a cheap recording device. The most important mic is the one that you're using. Uh, don't get hung up on the most expensive or the most the thing that everyone's talking about online. It's great if you have those funds to be able to get the things that help you get the most pristine recordings. But uh, you know, uh, if you ever listen to, I, I talked earlier about Gary Rydstrom on how he took apart uh, Jurassic Park. And some of those recordings are dirty as shit. <laughs> um, and, but the thing is that they know how to use them. They know how to layer them. They know what works. And they take chances uh, on these things and putting things together that you don't normally hear. Um, so I think experimentation, look for happy accidents, being at the right place at the right time to get the recordings. Uh, you know, try different things when working in your DAW, um, where you where you try and layer things together and and try and have some sort of unique voice that allows you to be you. Right? You don't necessarily have to sound like anybody else. But I, I think that's really what it comes down to. As I said, it's it's complicated. It's not an easy, you know, one note thing. But if if I did have to come down, it would be work on your craft, um, and show show us who you could be, who you are. I think that be. those two, I think that the the two kind of primary bullet points that I take away from that of you you know you're looking for taste and also work on your craft. To me, those go hand in hand because. Somebody who is loaded with craft and really understands their techniques and their the tools and they they, they have a, a real strong technical ability yeah. will be able to express their inner voice without getting lost in translation. You know, the, it, it's like you can picture in your mind the most fantastical thing. I remember there was a quote. I've never been able to determine if this was a real quote, but there was a quote from Debussy where he said something like, I, I can hear this music in my head and then I have to struggle with quarter notes and eighth notes on the paper on uh, and 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 that i think we all have that problem you know you can picture this thing that seems just gifted from the universe itself and then if you don't have the technique to actually make it real yeah you're there will always be a disconnect between your imagination and what you actually create that other people have a chance to listen to and so yeah. the better technique reduces the the sort of noise that 
is interjected or the friction that comes from that translation from the inner to the to the outer and to, so to me it sounds like you're really you're really looking for both of those in, in tandem yeah. which to me yeah. seems yeah, because I mean, I think even throughout my career, I've I've used my voice to temp in a lot of effects because I'll, I'll have ideas in my head, and it'll be funny. Like I'll have like different sound designers going, "Do that again," um, you know. <laughs> I'll just be like reviewing their work, and I say, "Why don't we add something like, you know, or something like that in there?" And they're like, "Whoa, what was what was that?" And um, so it just it's just something that that as you said, like comes out of your head, but. It, you have to be able to get those ideas down in some tangible way to present your work. Uh, and I think the, the last thing I would add to that is don't forget that you are a valued storyteller, uh, even if you are starting out. And if if you can help tell a story and show a direction uh, and follow that through, uh, that is uh, a voice uh, you know worthy of being heard. I'm gonna let it. I'm gonna let it sit with that. Phil Kovetz, awesome. <laughs> Thanks for doing this, man. Oh, I suspect. I suspect you have not killed the future for sound designers and audio directors on this podcast. Uh, well, that that would be great because I there was I wasn't nervous at all going in on this. Um, <laughs> No, this is this is amazing. Thank you guys so much for for asking me to be on and having me on and, and listening to me ramble for about an hour and a half. Um, and uh, I just want to tell everyone who's listening, I love your games. I love your I love your art. I love your projects. I love your stories. So keep pushing it. And uh, you inspire me. You inspire my team. And and I love every bit of it. Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org. The Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences is excited to share that the 2022 DICE Summit and DICE Awards will be returning in person to the gorgeous Mandalay Bay Resort and Casino and Delano Hotel in Las Vegas on February 22nd to 24th, 2022. We'll be celebrating the 25th anniversary of the DICE Awards and bringing together industry leaders to share their ideas about the many facets of the interactive entertainment industry. Stay tuned to www.interactive.org and our Twitter, at official underscore AIAS for more details coming soon, including special anniversary rates. We can't wait to see you again.